I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. All right, folks, this week, we're letting it all hang out. We've got a really <laughs> unstructured kind of seat of the pants episode we're doing, and it's going to be great just the same. We're kind of getting back to the basics of the podcast where Dean and I do just talk about something for about 40 minutes. <laughs> um, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. Before we get there, though, I do need to tell you about something really exciting, dear listeners, and it is this. If you like our podcast, you can go support us at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can give us a little bit of your money, a little bit of that DOS capital that you got in your wallet, and uh, you can support us. You get the you get the satisfaction of knowing that your money is going to go <laughs> to keeping us doing this podcast for just a little bit longer. Um, in exchange, you get all kinds of other fun things like uh, maybe a sticker. You get access to early episodes. Uh, when they come out, which is sometimes and not all the time. Um, and also you get access to the uh, behind the paywall Discord channel. And that's pretty cool. Um, we actually just started this past week um, having a having a discussion group where we read an, uh, an essay from the monthly review and we talk about it. Uh, so this past week, a few of us got together and we talked about China, which was uh, great. I think that uh, I didn't bring much to the conversation but um, other folks did, and it was a really good time. So that could be you. You could be a part of that. So just uh, go to our Patreon and maybe give us some money. And if you don't want to, that's fine. It's not a big deal. You can also just leave us a little a little uh, nice review on iTunes, a little five out of five stars. That'd be great. Yeah, there's also a uh, podcast behind the paywall that we do if you don't get enough of us in this part of your life <laughs> called the lock-in where we do reddit goofs and talk about current events and expand on some stuff that we do in the podcast and so on uh it's a little more chill i guess it's more like the vibe of this episode right here where we're just figuring it out <laughs> as we go uh so if that's something you want to pay for you can uh but i wouldn't blame you if you didn't uh it would be great though if you did uh give us one of those reviews okay that's enough of that commercial i'm tired of it uh, let's move on to the real content, the substance, why the people are tuning in to this one. And Matt and I were trying to figure out what to do this week. We had some plans. They fell through and we were DMing and uh, we decided, you know what? Something we've been talking about a lot just together and not on this podcast is the problem of true Christianity, what people think that is, and Christian socialism. 
And Matt and I both <laughs> came to the sort of vague conclusion that we actually don't know how to feel <laughs> about some of it. So I guess we're going to figure it out in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. And we'll invite you all to figure out how you feel about it with us as well. Does that seem like a good <laughs> entree into this, Matt? Is that where we're, yeah. where we're heading? Yeah, I think so. Um, we're going to get to the bottom of uh, the various appeals to what is what is and what is not true Christianity. Um, we might solve it. We also might, you know, we'll open up a new plateau. We'll open up a new line of inquiry. This is the this is a way of talking that people teach you in grad school. And if you're not a grad school goer, that's okay. Um, but this is a way that you can sound smart when you really don't know the answer to something. Yeah, just a great a great line of questioning that, to open up on this. And uh, I'll consider that for for the research. Uh, but this time we mean it because we're a podcast, so we don't have the uh, <laughs> we don't have the um, the ability to just kind of uh, put this on the back burner. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be an interesting conversation. At least we've talked around this a few different times and said some things about it. But I think to tackle it on uh, tackle it head on is a, is a lot. So we'll see where we get uh, get to by the end of the episode. Um, well, let's start off here. Uh, I'll I'll do my best to state the problem, and then we can see if uh, we can figure this one out. So when it comes to politics and Christianity, there is a tendency for people who are on the left, who are socialists, who are liberals even, and uh, people who are on the right, you know, all the other people, <laughs> the, two, <laughs> the two camps here. There people, there's a tendency for people on the left and the right to treat like their particular politics as an obvious re result of like one Bible passage or another, right? You know, they read the Bible uh, they understood, you know, something about it, and they've derived a, an important political point for them from that Bible passage. Um, for example, folks on the right will read uh, a handful of verses from the Old Testament or whatever and conjure up a whole regime of uh, of persecution for LGBTQ people, right? And like that becomes the core of what the, what it means to be a Christian to them and engage in politics. And on the other hand. Um, people on the left will read a story about Jesus's miraculous healing and whatever. And, and that's actually support for Medicare for all specifically. And Jesus is a socialist, right? That's like what people rush to. Um, so in both these cases, I think it's pretty interesting, but in both these cases, folks will engage in deeply complex interpretive projects to support their politics, all the while insisting that what they've actually got is simple and clearly stated and, you know, it's just what Jesus is all about. So people, uh, I, I guess the, the rub here is that um, people uh, will derive a whole lot of political meaning from something that has not a lot of political meaning. <laughs> um, and they will try to present that as something as clear. All right. Does that make sense, Dean? Is what I'm saying <laughs> coherent? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, that's what's so hard about it. The problem, I'm, you know, we've talked about this at length on the show, too. But I think there's a time in both of our lives where we would have been in this same boat, right? You read the Bible. The Bible doesn't like things like, I don't know, kings. It doesn't like things like violence in some cases. <laughs> in other cases, it likes it a lot, but <laughs> in some cases. And so you kind of derive this uh, left-wing sort of Christian anarchist stance, for instance, from what you think is kind of the pulse of the biblical story. And I do think there's a lot of productive things about that. Maybe in a more serious way, you might think of somebody like the person that always comes to mind for me is James Cone, right? Like uh, there's a really powerful argument that he puts forward in God of the Oppressed, where he argues that true Christianity is the anti-racist one. It's the Christianity of black Christianity uh, and white Christianity. The oppressive one, the racist one is just not right. It's it's heretical. It's uh, not not the true one. It's a fake version. 
Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's rhetorically extremely powerful, very effective, and it catches me off guard. It makes me want to <laughs> say I'm a Christian, right, when you read it. Um, but at the same time, I do think you kind of lose something uh, by reducing uh, the stakes of Christianity, perhaps, to those um, that kind of binary, even though it's really rhetorically effective, politically effective, perhaps, yeah. too. So anyway, we'll have to parse that out together as we go. But uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting problem to think through, having uh, having been through that problem in a different sort of way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the James Cohn example is so uh good because yeah i mean just like you said it makes you want to be a christian like you i agree with james cone and like what he's saying is i think is probably true at the same time you have to recognize that like a whole lot of other christians have read exactly the opposite you know mm-hmm. um and like it you could just say that all other christians are actually heretics who have read you know um the bible in favor of white supremacy or something and I think that would be letting them all off the hook too easily. <laughs> you know, you can't really take seriously um, what uh, what Christians have actually done in the name of white supremacy if you just say they're not really Christians, because that erases a lot of a lot of things and uh, ends up being problematic in some ways. We'll probably talk about. So all that to say, um, you can take it from these these two evangelical college going Bible boys. <laughs> <laughs> Reading the Bible is actually a really hard thing to do. And uh, treating it as something that's like simple that you can just say, well, this supports Medicare for all, or this supports uh, nonviolent direct action, or this supports free enterprise or whatever um, is, is difficult. It's a project that you're building yourself, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say, rather than being like a simple uh, meaning that's just in the text, right? In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the rhetoric that arises around these sorts of stories, um, whether on the left or the right, that they're, we're going to take a look at the rhetoric around like true Christianity and politics. Like how does this work out in the case of James Cone or from someone on the right? And it's all pretty complicated, but I think it's a really important question to answer. Um, you know, uh, the, the thing that kind of always I, I struggle with about it, I suppose, is just that like the rhetoric, at least on the left, like from someone like James Cone, or um, I'm going to talk about Reverend Barber here in a second. Um, I think it's like really powerful and it's like something that I think is like can actually be a really, I don't know, important force (laughs) for like organizing. But, uh, you know, rhetoric doesn't necessarily mean philosophy or doesn't mean like, you know, a systemic, uh, a systematic way of looking at something. So it it becomes quite complicated. Yeah, I mean, that's really the challenge, I think, in this whole conversation, one that we'll have to figure out slowly. But Uh, The challenge of parsing out what's rhetorically useful and what is maybe analytically true or what what do you gain by having those rhetorical interventions and what do you lose by overcomplicating them? (laughs) You know, like all those things are real problems. Like, uh, undeniably, it makes a big difference if you can convince somebody that, yes, the sort of consequence of being a Christian, the things that that identity commits you to are actually socialism, right? Like that's a really compelling thing and it moves a lot of people in the right direction it moved me in the right direction so i have some time for it um but yeah the question is what also do you kind of uh, cover over or fail to notice or um how does your analytical frame of reference maybe get a little bit smaller if you uh, adopt that rhetoric as a way of understanding uh the totality of what it means to talk about true christianity or something like that so yeah i don't know we'll figure it out <laughs> parsing out the rhetoric and the uh kind of analytical lens i think is going to be a, a fun challenge to sort through it together. 
That's right. Well, we're about 12 minutes in here, and, and so far we've made a lot of promises about how we're going to figure <laughs> this one out, and I'm, yeah. I'm not so sure, but yeah. <laughs> we're going to get somewhere, certainly. <laughs> okay. I think uh, maybe if you're not tracking so far, don't be afraid. I think what we've said is kind of heady, and we'll probably break it down a little bit more. So um, I'm going to give two examples that might shed some more light on what we're talking about. And it might take a minute to get through these examples because at least one of them is quite lengthy and one of them is just extremely funny. And I'm going to have to laugh a lot as, my, as I get through it. Um, okay, so here's the first example I think that will kind of help illustrate the problem and we can kind of talk through it. So uh, Reverend William Barber II, he is one of the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, if you don't know about it, it's like basically a broad advocacy group for the rights of poor people. It's progressive. It's good. I mean, honestly, no problems with it. <laughs> um, Reverend Barber is someone I think I like pretty deeply respect as a person and an activist. He is like literally out there saying all the things that often need to be said. Um, he's not a socialist, which, um, well, I mean, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He doesn't quite talk about politics in those terms, which I think is something very interesting. Um, and something we'll have to wade through here in this conversation too, but just the same. Um, he's good. Okay. I don't think I actually have any real criticisms of what like the Portugal's <laughs> campaign is about or, or like William Barber. I think he's like good. That's all I'm trying to say. It's my big disclaimer that he's a good, he's a good person. I think what he says is good. Okay. I've said it. There we go. Um, there's a, there's a quote that I found that is, uh, from an interview he did in 2020. And I think the quote is like, it's not like outstanding in any way. It's just, I think basically like kind of on brand it's on his message. It's, it's the way he's always talking about things when it comes to Christianity and justice. So I thought I'd pour it out as just kind of like a, uh, a good example. Um, so in the interview, his, his interviewer, uh, he asks uh, Reverend Barber uh, just basically about like what he thinks about like right-wing Christians and why they're more concerned about like Israel than, than like justice in the United States or something, right? And um, I'm going to read a little bit of what uh, Barber's response was here. This, it's a little bit lengthy, so uh, deal with it, listener. <laughs> He says this, let's look at Jesus' political theology. When Jesus preached his first sermon, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And the poor were those who had been victimized by economic exploitation. And the good news was healing to the brokenhearted, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. And then he goes on to say, for me, the teaching of Jesus is the highest. I don't claim to be preaching the left gospel or the right gospel or living out the left gospel or the right gospel. It's just the gospel. And the gospel is clear that there's no separation between Jesus and justice. And there's no separation between Jesus and caring about the least of these and challenging the systems, whether that system is racism or ex economic exploitation or ecological devastation or the war economy or false religion um, or nationalism. The gospel is a critique of all of it. Okay. So on the one hand, I affirm and agree with Reverend Barber's reading of Jesus and justice. That's the one that I like particularly. <laughs> I think it's good. I'm here for it, for sure. But where we might differ is that there's no left or right gospel. So this is uh, the particular orientation that Barber has here is, I feel bad saying just his last name, Reverend Barber. I feel like he, he commands a little bit more respect than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I think like the thing, the, the way that Reverend Barber has framed this is that first, uh, you know, if there's a hierarchy of like uh, concerns or obligations he has, the gospel's at the top, right? And mm -hmm. then politics is under that probably um, somewhere, maybe even down further, who knows? Um, and 
that that's what he means when he says that there's no left or right gospel that it's just the gospel it's just you know he thinks it's the bible at the very top and i feel less convinced of that mm. um i don't find that particular claim very convincing uh not because what i think he's saying about the gospel is different from my own experience or what i think is true necessarily but because there's like 2000 plus years of christians who are also reading the same gospel that came to like very different conclusions and like um you know found a whole lot of reasons to um crush people <laughs> and uh be awful and to simply say that those people weren't really christians or that those people weren't really reading the gospel or that they weren't you know whatever they weren't believing the right way i feel like that gives people too easy a way out right mm. Um, so if, if, uh, if Reverend Barber, if what he had was simply the gospel, um, you know, then why would we still be having this conversation? You know, I, I think like, um, if you look at the history of Christianity, there are all kinds of, I mean, wildly different movements within it, right? It's not monolithic at all. There's all these different types of, uh, Christianities that privilege some types of political action over others and some types of social organization over others. I always think of like, Gerard Wynn Stanley and, and, and the Diggers, yeah. right? Like, um, they are people who are like, uh, we read the Bible, we know what it's all about. <laughs> We've been to church, and that's why you can't you can't have the land that we're on that it belongs to everybody. Private property's bad or whatever, you know. And then, but other people who are reading the Bible are like, well, actually, <laughs> we can <laughs> enclose upon it if we want to, right? They're both they're two groups of people that are reading the same Bible. Two groups of people who I think are probably, you know, they both think that they're probably pretty faithful. They're not heretics. And yet they're still coming to these different conclusions. And to say, like, one is simply right and one is simply wrong is just like, well, if Christianity was just done right, then, uh, you know, then we'd have no problems or whatever. It's just this constant appeal to, like, past authority that ends up being cyclically problematic, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense, Dean? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I can imagine a listener listening to that and saying, well, sure, writing all these people off as the bad ones as not real Christians is, uh, you know, maybe a hard thing to do, but maybe not impossible. Maybe you do have to kind of, you know, um, write all them off. You know, why does why does the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the, the way to eternal life or whatever it is that Jesus says? And yeah, sure, lots of people just kind of get it wrong and, and pervert it and so on. And, and the key is to find that narrow path and stay on it. But I think uh, to kind of avoid the damage of Christianity and the damage of what's done in the name of true Christianity is also very, um, that puts you in a kind of ironic way on the path to destruction insofar as I think we end up kind of repeating a lot of weird Christian assumptions when we assume that we can get out of that bind. At least that's my own experience. I, I'll, I'll just put it. I'll put it in first person language. I ended up repeating and still do repeat lots of uh, Christian violent tendencies when I find myself sort of drifting into a more uh, secure Christian identity or something like that. And I think that is important to kind of stay vigilant about. Um, I always think of this line from Vine Deloria's book, uh, God is Red. He's a um, liberation theologian, kind of, and then not so much. I don't know. A really important indigenous scholar is the better way to put it. Anyway, uh, in God is Red, which is a critique of um, uh, Christianity and also a really fascinating indigenous spirituality book. Uh, he has this line in there where he's kind of dealing with this objection that all oh, those people weren't real Christians. 
And he says something to the effect of like, well, they understood themselves to be Christians, but also so did everyone else. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they built, you know, they named streets after them and they named uh, monuments after them. And uh, everybody who ever got elected to office in the countries that they built happened to be Christian and so on. So it's like at a certain point, the empirical evidence is such that at least as a cultural form, Christianity is not, you know, whatever we want it to be or the kind of aspirational thing that we would like it to be. And I think it's just important to keep that open. And we'll have to find a way to talk about Christianity maybe later on where we can sort of figure out what it means to talk about it at all. Um, It is important to kind of complicate talking about Christianity in the singular even. uh, But nevertheless, um, I guess the key is to say what you lose by adopting the barber strategy, again, understanding that Reverend Barber is extremely cool and very important. Uh, what you lose is that attention to the complexities of basically the fact that you do have to take on board everything that Christianity has done. And then you have to sort it through and make a decision about what you want to do moving forward rather than kind of committing yourself to one piece of it over against all the rest of uh, history or something. Yeah, that's right. Well, at least maybe one distinction that we can make is that on this podcast, at least we are when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about it materially, I think, is, yeah, is usually yeah. the point that we stick to, right? Like Christianity um, has a material reality that I think that you have to pay attention to. Uh, Christianity is what it does in the world, right? Um, It can also, you know, it also produces uh, a certain set of beliefs that you can accept and kind of put together, but it does have a certain set of material realities with with particular possibilities that stem from that. So I guess that maybe is one, um, one thing we can articulate about what Christianity is, or at least what we're talking about, right? Like, yeah. Um, the Spanish Inquisition is Christianity because like Christianity literally did it. Right. 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 <laughs> but also but also so are the diggers because Christianity literally did that, too. But yeah. these are like um, these are projects of people like fiddling with what they have and seeing mm-hmm. like what can kind of come of it. Right. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. And I think that's the thing that I find sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, well, we can keep we can keep going on that path in a minute. Maybe um, let me read another example. Um of uh, this type of like weird appeal to like a simple and obvious Christianity um, based on just like reading something. Um, But this time from a different perspective, Um, Christians on the right are just as guilty as this kind of thing as people on the left and probably more so, (laughs) or or maybe just in ways I like less. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In more absurd ways for sure. So this one is a pretty big one. So here's an example from our friends at the Acton Institute. Um, uh, real Magnificast heads will know the Acton Institute from, from some of our earlier days um, <laughs> the podcast. They are a libertarian Christian think tank, which is, you know, uh, the most opposite, as you can think as you <laughs> can think of. It's a, the perfect foil for this podcast. This is um, from a blog that was written by some guy named Richard Turnbull. I don't know anything about him, um, but he wrote a silly blog, so I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> um, so the whole point of the blog is him trying to explain... Um, why entrepreneurship is biblical is a biblical idea (laughs) which i don't know why you would want to do that (laughs) like why that's important but this is what he's done um so here's a little bit from richard turnball um there are numerous biblical examples of enterprise and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. first numerous exodus yeah so many (laughs) first exodus 35 30 through 35 (laughs) The context for this verse is the people of Israel wandering the desert prior to entering the promised land. Here, detailed instructions are given for the construction of the tabernacle, which will be the focus of worship during this period. Moses points to one individual named Bazalel, uh, probably saying that wrong, but that's okay, 
And he says this, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, He has filled him with the spirit of God and skill, with intelligence and knowledge, and with all the craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. What a busy guy. (laughs) Very busy. Yeah. Um, He has filled them with the skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer (laughs) or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by weaver and any sort of workman or skilled designer. Man, the Old Testament is just full of stuff. You this know? is just my like favorite. Uh, my favorite Marvel superhero is Bazalel, the guy <laughs> who can just make anything. He can do. OK, he can't do anything. He can do the things that engravers do. Right, right. And embroiderers, designers and weavers. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. He can also cut stones. So this is like, OK. Hang on. Clearly, Reverend Barber's simple reading of the gospel and just kind of putting it out there is way more compelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this one, this one, just like Reverend Barber's, I, I feel like I feel again kind of bad putting them next to each other because like one is clearly different yeah, and better. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and this one is just like kind of silly. But still, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that but both fail to recognize that uh, they lean on a on a plain understanding of of scripture. Um, that um, instead of generating political obligations, is actually just bringing political obligations to the to the scripture, to the Bible, uh, rather than the way around. So, um, you know, like I said, um, uh, Reverend Barber puts the Bible first, then politics second, and just like that, this like very bizarre conservative guy, he puts the Bible first, and then he, he, you know, and then politics second. But really, what they're doing is the opposite. They actually already have these political obligations, and they're bringing, you know, they're kind of coming to the Bible with them. And um, I think that's at least how I would put it. Um, I, I suppose it's more complicated than that, though, because these things intermingle and mix in different ways, right? Like, you know, you might come to the Bible with a certain set of political obligations, and then you end up being pushed further by the Bible in a certain direction. But all I'm trying to say here is that, like, um, you know, this isn't as simple as, like, reading a passage and then deriving a direct, a direct obvious meaning about entrepreneurship from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that... I don't know if this is a helpful way in, but my brain just made this connection. But, you know, we we talk on the show a lot about uh, this book called The Gospel in Salentaname, but it's been a long time since we mentioned it on the podcast. So I'll mention now Um, if you haven't listened to the show or don't know about the book, it's a uh, it's a record of a bunch of uh, people in Salentaname which is a chain of islands in Nicaragua, getting together and talking about the Bible. And a lot of them come from the peasant class in that particular area. And they're sort of led in these discussions by Ernesto Cardinal, one of our favorite revolutionary priests. And it's a fascinating book to read because what you get is all these people engaging different biblical stories and texts and then kind of uh, interpreting that in light of their own situation. And... Mm -hmm. I love it so much because it's the product of a dialogue. It's not like, and here is the meaning of the text. It's like, well, here is the way that this text is kind of bouncing around uh, in a community of people who are trying to think through their own position. And you get these really productive uh, kind of fits and starts. Like sometimes people agree and disagree with each other. But for example, like there's one uh, part when they're talking about the Magnificat, Mary's song, and uh, somebody at some point says, basically that Mary is uh, a Marxist or, you know, she's a revolutionary socialist kind of person. And someone else is like, well, I don't know about that. And, uh, you know, they have this really interesting conversation. But I think that is such a great and productive thing to do to just sort of uh, 
I don't know, intentionally bring your politics to the Bible and then see what happens. Uh, yeah. And, and put it in dialogue. You know, the Bible can sort of um, it doesn't just like neatly fit into your own political categories either. It's I think it's important to let the text kind of trouble you as well and, you know, make for a, a kind of live dialogue there. But nevertheless, uh, you're not going to come to the Bible and then find the sort of magic recipe for like how to be a good political actor in the world. You have to sort of engage that thing. And I love that text just because it's such a good uh, demonstration of that happening kind of in real time. Yeah, definitely. And again, I don't want to like suggest that, I don't know, <laughs> Reverend Barber is some kind of like bad actor or whatever <laughs> doing <laughs> this because I don't think it's the case. But like, I think that it's really important to parse these specific relationships out and like how how we encounter biblical texts and like how do they actually form us and like, how are we willing to, you know, accept or reject parts of them, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> despite whatever um, any evangelical pastor wants you to think, like, you, no one accepts the entire Bible in its entirety yeah. because that wouldn't actually make sense. It's not comprehensible in any way to do that, right? Like, you always have to kind of take some of it up and, and spit some of it out and, like, fine. Um, but, like, parsing out exactly how that works is really important, um, I, I think, because uh, otherwise you you know, you could think of it too simplistically. I, and also, I mean, like, okay, neither Dean or, or I are biblical scholars in the least, and, you know, we wouldn't pretend to be. But, like, um, there are ways that you can kind of bring your own assumptions to the text and have these, like, very fruitful sort of encounters. I think that's totally fine in, like, you know, in dialogue or whatever. But also, like, I mean, there's a whole, like, historical movement of people who are who are doing, you know, the opposite, like, well, what's happening in the actual culture of, you know, the writers of this particular piece of scripture, all this kind of stuff, too, where people do, like, real exegetical work about, like, you know, the context of these, like, these writings, too, which is also really good, but, like, a different conversations yet, you know, it's, like, another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, it's also, like, if someone asked me flat out, do I think the Bible has a certain orientation or, like, a certain... I don't know, pulse to it or something. I guess I would probably say yes. Uh, you know, like I do think totally. that yeah. the Bible points in a direction that I, I think basically you you can recognize, I hope, the trajectory of my life in that arrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, do I th I do not think that the Bible is a treatise about how to build a socialist world. But I think that, you know, it points you in the direction that puts you on the path to uh, then wanting to figure out how to build a socialist world. So it's it's not like I don't believe some version of that story myself, but uh, maybe talking about Reverend Barber a little more is helpful because, you know, you're right. Of course, Reverend Barber is not a bad actor. In fact, he's a good actor. I think he's doing a lot of good stuff in the world. I'm happy that he's out there and doing doing the things he does. But what sometimes frustrates me about Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign is that the appeal to saying that this is just the gospel, you know, I'm not out here on the left, uh, I don't do the left or right thing. It's like, I can understand the rhetoric, I'm sure it probably convinces a handful of people who are on the fence about something and are genuinely good faith people trying to figure out the world around them. But at the end of the day, like, you just do need to recognize, though, that like the left is doing it <laughs> better <laughs> you know like um if you really believe these things like if you really believe that the gospel is against all this stuff like economic uh militarism and exploitation and so on then like at some point you have to just say and that's why i believe in socialism explicitly as a thing and i want to figure that out even though you know you're gonna lose some of your audience by doing that and 
you know, it's it's why Reverend Barber ends up sharing a stage with like people to judge sometimes. And it's like, I, I don't know, man, <laughs> it's like I'm not sure who's really uh, getting something out of this sort of uh, situation. Uh, it certainly isn't me, a person trying to, uh, you know, I don't know, build some other kind of world. Uh, so I don't know uh, all that to say. It's good. Reverend Barber is good. I think I understand rhetorically what's going on there, but the rhetoric itself actually kind of stops you from following that path that maybe you're going to have to if you want to deliver on those promises. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it does kind of put up a block, right? If you're not willing to say that, if you're not willing to do the interpretive work of like, um, well, the Bible does have a certain orientation towards justice, which again, I think is also true. But again, it's like part of a, it's a part of a thing that you're reading. It's like a part of something that you're, you know, you're doing with the text and the text is doing back. It's this whole postmodern thing, deconstruction, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> That's another episode. But like, uh, uh, yeah, to, to uh, bar yourself from thinking about it, like from bringing your own set of political values and goals to it, I think sells yourself. I mean, like it, it blocks off, like uh, it blocks off possibility in a really weird way where like you just like, you'll, you just won't see some opportunities, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this one man, such a such a reach into the past. Um, but I don't know. A while back, we did read um, uh, a book from Juan Segundo about liberation theology, and there's this part uh, somewhere in there. God, I, again, this is flying by the seat of my pants here, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was talking about Christians for Socialism in Chile. And he's like, well, it's like, isn't it interesting, I guess. Uh, this probably is not exactly the right quote. But, you know, there's a thing called Christians for Socialism, but there's nothing called Christians for Capitalism. Right, there doesn't right. need to be, right? Because it's already held together as a sort of politics. And if you don't explicitly, you know, do that, <laughs> like you're going to, you're not going to, you're, you're, you know, you're going to fall into the wrong side. You're going to be a Christian for, for Capitalism without really realizing it, right? If you're not, um, if you're not bringing an actual political analysis to the table and you're just kind of letting the gospel be the gospel and like leaving it at that and like leaving politics up to politicians, like that is uh, closing off a whole area <laughs> of possibility for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, Segundo, there's also a really good quote uh, that I think we probably talked about on that episode too, but he says, uh, there's no such thing as Christian theology or a Christian interpretation of the gospel message in the absence of a prior political commitment, only the latter makes the former possible at all. Um, and I think that makes sense to me, right? That, like, you don't just sort of... Well, here's something I used to do as, as an evangelical. I don't know if you did this too, Matt. It's very embarrassing to admit this, but... Okay. I definitely <laughs> didn't do it then. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I did do it, and I would, like, you know, I would take the Bible as a young adolescent person who believed that the, that every word of it was true in in a straightforward, literal way, and, and it all hung together and, and whatever. Uh, I would take that Bible and just sort of open it up and then read a passage and sort of try to divine the secret meaning of that passage for my life, right? Uh-huh. As, as though uh, just sort of inherent in the text and in every little piece of it is some way, some insight into how I ought to be a person in the world. So... You know, sometimes you open that up and your brain is a very powerful projection machine and you find, I don't know, you find out how to deal with not making the basketball team or whatever it is. But uh, other times you uh, open it up and you're like, well, here I am in the genealogies. I better think really hard about what this means for my life, you know, and uh, I think like there's something really bizarre about that exercise, but it really underlines, I think, Segundo's point that <laughs> that's an extremely weird thing to do to a book. Uh, and it actually will not <laughs> help. Uh, 
help you figure out how to be, uh, I don't know, how to cope with uh, not making the basketball team, which, as you can see, I did not make it. Um, so I think, you know, the just the admission that you have to sort of bring your assumptions to the text and then, of course, let it bounce around within the text and challenge you and so on. But that assumption actually frees you up too to be like, all right, I need to figure out what I need to get out of this <laughs> so that I can actually make it usable. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also, okay, one quick caveat here too, because um, I hear that one person out there who's really skeptical of what we're saying. Um, and they're like, you know, if you're only bringing, if you're, if you're bringing your own political um, inclinations to the text or whatever, then are you saying that the text doesn't mean anything, you just have to read things into it. And that, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, um, you know, what I, what I am saying though, is that um, the, the Bible's a really old bunch of books, right? <laughs> And like, what do they mean? Nobody knows, man. <laughs> they have narratives, they have genres, they have themes. Of course, it's all in there. But like, uh, chances are you as a person in 2021, you're not going to just pick up the Bible and kind of figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. So like, you have to kind of bring whatever you have to it. And yeah. I don't know, um, the the Holy Spirit will figure out the rest, I suppose. But <laughs> um, it's just like, I, I guess... I don't want to like maybe this is a this is too heavy handed of a metaphor, but like the Bible says something, right? There are real themes in the Bible, and they do really exist, right? And like to people can can do all kinds of things with them, though, is sort of the problem. Like the Bible is like a a very um, a very uh, it's like a Swiss Army knife, I guess maybe is, is like <laughs> what it is, but not in the useful way. It's a Swiss Army knife that people keep trying to use wrongly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or uh, people keep trying to like jam it in different places that it's not supposed to go. But like that's just the way that people are gonna like people. That's just what you're gonna do with it, right? So it's like uh, the Bible, like I guess like probably all texts. It's a type of technology that you can make do a lot of different things, and mm -hmm. like doesn't mean that you should, but you definitely can, and people do. And I guess that's um part of the part of the problem for me is, is figuring out like um yeah i mean like exactly like what does that mean and like what is a what's the responsibility of people who are socialists you know like what do we should we be doing this with the bible in the first place is it worth it mm -hmm. and uh i guess it's hard to step away from it at this point but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there it is the bible is a swiss army knife that people are using in the weirdest ways yeah, yeah. I think too. Well, let me put something on the table and we'll just see whether or not this lands. But I want to go back to the point you made earlier about having a, a materialist understanding of Christianity, because I think that's really the key here, too, which is to say, what do these things do in the world? You can do the same thing with the Bible, right? What does it do? What's its material history? What are the consequences of it? And I think when you do that, what is especially fascinating to me is you don't actually get one straightforward story. It, it just is not yeah. the case that like, the Bible makes liberation happen or it makes oppression happen. It makes these two things happen at the same time. in in a lot of cases, you know, like again, thinking materially, you might think of uh, like Nat Turner or John Brown, right? These uh, Christian revolutionaries who thought that because of their Christianity, that there shouldn't be slavery. But of course the people that they were fighting were all slaveholders who went to church every Sunday. Right. So uh, there's something really important about that, that both of these people are holding the same book. Uh, their worlds can't even really make sense without that book, but the, those worlds are also incommensurable. Like they can't uh, uh, in one of them, slavery continues and in the other one it is abolished. So I think like, it's important too to kind of say, well, 
what that means, at least to me, is I don't really want to find out what Christianity sort of is, you know, in an ultimate sense, which you can probably spend your entire life uh, kind of, I don't know, trying to sort out in a perfect way. But I do want to figure out, like, what Christianity can be and has been and sort of what what can be done with Christianity. You know, what is Marx has that line about uh I forget what it is now, but something about how what, what people make, uh, they can remake or make differently. You know, that's the lesson mm-hmm. of materialism, that all these structures are made up so we could just remake them. Uh, I feel the same way about Christianity as a thing. It's like it's uh, it has a material history, which is to say it's plastic and malleable. And we have to be able to kind of make decisions that uh, point it in a particular direction, even while it's also, you know, changing us and doing things with us that we <laughs> may or may yeah. not like in the process. Yeah, totally. Well, um, we're kind of getting close to the end here, maybe. Uh, but let's let's talk about this really quickly, because I think it's a really important point. So um, if I do say so myself, I think what we're saying here sort of uh, analytically is right. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course, I'm going to double down. And yeah. Say, yeah, of course. Of course. I think what we're saying here is right. The problem is, though, it is a difficult way to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like the analytics are super difficult. Um, because it's not compelling to anybody, right? To because like um, Reverend Barber can go up on a stage, even with Pete Buttigieg, it doesn't matter, and he can he can be like, well, listen, uh, if you don't give a shit about poor people or people who are sick, you're a heretic. That's powerful. Like <laughs> that's a powerful move to do rhetorically, and um, it rules too, right? Like it's great um to to call your political opponents like heretics or just like kind of chastise them for not doing like the christian thing it is a powerful thing to do it's like it's something that really only pastors can get away with too i think but um it is a difficult uh a difficult thing to square though with the analysis because of the like the bigger problems we've kind of laid out already but um, what we're left with is like, well, on the one hand, there's this like very effective rhetorical tool that might mobilize people. It might be good for organizing. It might be good for, um, I don't know, like convicting people. Uh, but like lack a little bit of the analytic um, thing that, may, that that is very important, right? Like that we're talking about here. Um, on the other hand, you know, the analytic has no rhetorical flair. It's just two guys on a podcast kind of bubbling through <laughs> it. <laughs> so, like, I don't really know what to do with that. Because, like, on the one hand, I, I'm, you know, like, um, Reverend Barber is, like, going to get things done. And ours is just going to, like, maybe understand something. And that makes yeah. me feel very confused. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel that way, too. I mean, that's a great tension in my personal life, I feel, <laughs> trying to figure out uh, <laughs> as, uh, well, it's no secret to people in this podcast. You know, I show up in a lot of communist circles. I spend a lot of time with communist people. And uh, I think I have a reputation as being the Christian one who, who is around. Uh, and, you know, every once in a while, someone does ask you, why, why do you bother? You know, and, and it is hard to sort of give an answer to that question that doesn't have a thousand footnotes, you know. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, at the end of the day, to make the conversation short, usually what I'll say is something like, you know, I, I was born in this tradition. I think there's something really compelling about it. It has a whole hold on me. I'm inspired by liberation theology and so on. But at the end of the day, I really feel like I'm a Christian because I do sort of believe it in, a, in an important way. Um, and so I'm trying to sort of make my life <laughs> conform to that, right? Like, I think it's okay to, to admit that in a conversation with an individual, but it's also so subjective or relative too, because you know, I live in a really multicultural city and sometimes I meet people who are uh, either they don't come from a Christian background or they're like severely harmed by it. 
And Mm -hmm. in those kinds of situations, the last thing you want to do is be like, well, that's just because those people weren't real Christians. If they were, you know, your country wouldn't have been bombed or like you uh, as a person wouldn't have been abused and so on. It's like, well, I don't know. All I can really say is like, yeah, I hate that Christians did that. And as a Christian person, you know, all I can do is try to sort of fight back against that from inside to recognize the struggle and own it. So again, it's like, I think there's something actually pretty rhetorically compelling in that sense about being willing to own up to the complexity of it and just being like, yes, I get that it is messed up and I'm here to (laughs) mess it up in the right way, I guess. Yeah, I think so too. Um, there can't, I guess, uh, if we were just more eloquent speakers, if we were just a little bit more uh, <laughs> invested yeah, yeah. in the rhetoric ourselves, we'd Fasters. be doing better. <laughs> yeah, if we were fasters. Yeah, it's true. Well, I, I guess that, um, there's calling it attention is probably right. You know, there's there's room for, I think, both these types of things um, in doing politics and Christianity. Like the sort of prophetic voice and calling people out is really powerful. It's not, it's not a tool I would want any pastor to give up, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay, some pastors definitely could give <laughs> yeah, it up, yeah. but, like, the good ones don't. Like, <laughs> I don't know, if uh, <laughs> pastors uh, have a tendency to go out on strike lines or whatever, I don't want them to, like, come out there with some, like, <laughs> some weak-ass analytical bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. no, call the boss a bad guy. <laughs> Get sure, over sure. It. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that, yeah, it's a time and a place thing, maybe, or, or maybe a, a strategy question or something, but, you know... It's it's always hard to parse out what's politically meaningful and what is uh, analytically meaningful and what's personally meaningful too, right? You can kind of evacuate your own Christianity, I think, if you um, lean into this too hard. And I do think that's like a, a hazard um, of thinking about that. And uh, I don't know. I'll just be honest. I want to be a Christian person. <laughs> I think that's fine. Um, I'll, I'll be a Christian for the rest of my life, for better or for worse. And uh, I'll figure out what to do with it at the very end, I guess. But, you know, um, all that to say, I do think that, like, it's important to recognize, too, that not sometimes, like, all those questions don't really come together in one single answer. Like, what's really personally meaningful to me and helps my own spirituality or whatever is not usually the same thing as like what I find analytically true or useful. Uh, and <laughs> typically neither of those things are the kinds of things I'm bringing to, I don't know, a rally or something. So I don't know. I think it's okay to sort of recognize that um, we don't have to sort of buy the evangelical lie that every single part of your life is actually like subsumed in this one singular uncomplicated Christian identity or something. Yeah, maybe that is the maybe that's what we're still working out here. I don't know. You know, this is like kind of we just have a few minutes, so I'll say it. This is like a little off the path, but I always think about this rally I went to several years ago in Toronto. It was like a water protector rally. So indigenous led, um, really uh, foregrounding the the role of indigenous spirituality in this kind of political uh, rally against a a pipeline at the time. And the rally was so fascinating because, like I said, there's this kind of foregrounding of indigenous spirituality, but then there was also um, uh, a woman from a Muslim community who spoke about her faith and why she was there. There was a woman from a Jewish community who came and spoke about her faith and why she was there. Um, And I think there were like a couple of other religious representatives, but there were actually no Christians who got up on the stage except this one guy who was there as a union person And uh, he got up and he was like, yeah, I'm here from the union. I'm really happy to see all this faith-based stuff. Like, I happen to be a Christian. 
Anyway, like, here's what unions think. <laughs> and I thought, like, that was actually the best possible way for a Christian to engage this because uh, Christians probably are the last people who should be, like, up on a stage <laughs> at a rally to, like, talk about a problem that is basically created by Christians, like the destruction of the planet and the genocide of indigenous people. So, you know, I think there's something about that, too, that, like, Sometimes it's politically advantageous as well to sort of recognize that your Christianity doesn't have to be the, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it matters in a way to make it more absent or less present uh, in a way that's very, very different from, I don't know, a Muslim person saying that they're mm-hmm. there for, you know, the reasons of their faith tradition in, in Canada or something. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just kind of like an anecdote that sticks out of my brain a lot about uh, kind of identifying Christianity in these weird spaces. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, it's just like uh, it is. It is a good example, though, of like you know the time where the analytic makes more sense, right? <laughs> it makes yeah. more sense than like fiery rhetoric, um, where you know, like I guess maybe the 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 uh, the powers at play in that given situation when yeah. when to minimize yourself, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well. Um, we've done it again. We did another episode that we didn't script out. It's been a long time. We didn't have a guest on. And uh, I don't know. We'll have to see when when you listen back to this, dear listener, tell us if it's rusty. <laughs> tell us if we should go back to uh, planning out every beat of the argument that we can talk through together. Uh, or if uh, this fireside chat vibe is something that we should lean into because it does feel good to do less prep. I have to admit, but I don't know if we actually get anything done. <laughs> we'll have to find yeah. out. We said some things for sure. <laughs> yeah, no one could fault us for that. We've opened up a whole new plateau, a new line of questioning, and I think that you got to appreciate that. Yeah, don't worry. We'll go back to talking about Cuba probably next week. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, like we said at the top of the show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us on social media. You can send us an email at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.